0: Event podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last nine years, We've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, when I say that uh, we've been meeting here this week, I mean it literally. You and I are actually in the same location this week. uh, I think for the first time in more than a year.
1: Definitely more than a year.
0: To record the co-main event podcast. And in classic CME fashion, it's not something that we planned. Uh, It just came together via happenstance because... What what are you having done at your house? Are you having the carpets cleaned or the carpets changed? What's going on?
1: Well, as longtime listeners will know, I recently bought a new house and have been in the process of basically just doing shit to it constantly since the moment I moved in. It feels and that will continue uh, perhaps indefinitely. I might be I might be in a, like a Remington house curse situation where I have to be constantly working on my house just to stop tragedy from befalling me. But today. I have a guy in there installing carpet in the basement where I keep my office and whatnot. Uh, I've found it's important to have my office on a different floor of the house from my children. And um, either I'm old or they send an extremely young man over to install this carpet. I hope he knows what he's doing. I guess we'll find out after I'm done recording this and I go over there to check on him.
0: So you're telling me there's some child labor issue stuff (laughs) happening over at your house today.
1: I mean... It is possible that it's just me being old. Because I've noticed this as a function of becoming an old guy. Sometimes I'm driving around town and I see people in other cars and I'm like, hold on. Ain't no way you are old enough to have a driver's license. How many phone books are you sitting on in there? And then come to realize that they're like 20 years old. So that's just a thing that happens.
0: Uh we got a big show this week as usual we're going to be talking UFC 265 for the for most of it and then I think in round number 3 here toward the end of the show talking a little bit about some Bellator stuff coming up. Uh UFC 265. I'm not imagining this, right? Like I feel like Bella or uh, UFC 265 was a particularly rough event for the co-main event Faithful. It's almost like all our favorites were going to go out there and lose. Uh, During this week, and that is to say, you know, nothing negative about Cyril gone, who seems like a great human being, but but Ed Herman lost.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Michael Chiesa lost. Mm -hmm. Angela Hill lost. Even poor Carolina Kovalkiewicz got armbarred by Jessica Penny while she's just out there waiting for a taxi. Yep. Right. Jessica Penny comes along, slaps the armbar on. It just seemed like I mean, maybe with the exception of Jose Aldo who was a person that I think a lot of us can get behind. This just seemed like it was a rough one for the, the capital G guys and girls of the co-main event podcast.
1: You're not wrong. However, there are also a couple bright spots, maybe not quite yet established capital G guys and girls of the co-main event podcast. But for instance, Miles Johns, he got himself a victory. Uh, I did a story not that long ago about his side business breeding and training uh, golden doodles. Oh, that's right. I remember that. So he's a good dude. I was happy to see him do well. Um, also, I mean, after I saw Cyril Gone on the UFC Embedded, getting really excited about finding those Martin shorts at the mall, trying to explain the phenomenon of the Martin Lawrence TV show, Martin, to his friends, uh, you know, seemed like maybe some some dude who Martin did not make its way to France for on their TVs, but Cyril Gahn found out about it, and this the kind of the joie de vivre that Cyril Gahn approached yeah. this fight week with, and then the performance itself. I guess maybe Cyril Gahn's trying to become a, trying to become one of my guys, Chad. I mean, it needs to
0: be said that Cyril Gahn seems like a cool customer.
1: He seems like a delightful human being, and frankly,
0: uh, I'm probably going to nail this french pronunciation like i always do but his nickname bongami which google translate tells me means good kid seems <laughs> like the perfect fucking nickname for Ciro Gon. it has to be said the man has a perfect nickname
1: who is the brazilian fighter who has the, essentially the the portuguese language version of that same nickname where it's like his nickname means like good guy
0: are you thinking of uh isn't Maybe. his nickname
1: something like uh Something Gentoboa? Like yeah. Yeah, okay. Is that him? Maybe. I we'll have to look it up But here. it seems, I mean, especially, I think we were talking about this a little bit on the Power Hour where we talked about the the press conference. He showed up there in Houston. Everybody's booing him. And he's just sort of making a face like, oh, come on, guys. I like you. Like, couldn't we just be friends? Uh You know, then he come going to come out to still tipping and really put the... The Houston crowd in a state of inner turmoil. Yeah. Do you want to boo Cyril Ghosn if it also means that you have to be booing instead of grooving to still tipping?
0: I mean, in the end, though, the Houston faithful weren't going to be swayed by that. They're still out there booing him in the post-fight interview. Uh, The internet tells me Santiago Ponzinibbio's nickname is the Argentine Dagger.
1: Now That that feels like something I've definitely never heard said out loud before now.
0: I agree with that. So, I don't know. Maybe we'll have to... Conduct a search here as we go for uh for for the uh the good guy the Brazilian I, good guy i
1: mean I do think that the dagger calling yourself the something something dagger or the dagger of something something is that has some real potential
0: team dagger is that what you're talking about
1: I'm just saying no, not not necessarily that. But you know how every once in a while we stumble upon somebody who either doesn't have a nickname or has a really crappy nickname that no one wants to actually use and we're like, this person needs a better nickname where we could force one on them all a Bobby Knuckles. Let's just take this dagger idea, the concept itself, and stick it in our back pockets for later.
0: Probably the first Team Dagger reference in more than a decade. <laughs> uh, we got music this week from old school CME fan Kyle Kelly Yoner, who also happens to be a drummer of tremendous skill. He's got a solo project out. It's an EP of instrumental tracks, mostly drums and synth. It's pretty cool. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can find the rest of the EP at his website, kyleky.com or uh, follow him at KyleKYDrums over on Instagram. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, hey, man, you can keep the made-up titles. But Cyril gone? He's good. And in round number two, after 17 years in the game, he's still fighting and, in some cases, beating these hitters. It's time to recommit some respect to the name of Jose Aldo Da Silva Oliveira Jr., and in round number three, how does it feel to be a 36-year-old heavyweight out here in your prime, riding a 3 and one record in your last four, and then you get the call to fight Fedor Emelianenko in Russia? It's not because they think you're doing great. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First... Piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Long Tall Sally. Okay, who writes? So a few year, a few weeks back, Dana decided to give Cole. Oh, we're just doing first names here. Yeah, just Dana decided to give Colby a rematch against Usman. We went last name there <laughs> on the on the welterweight <laughs> champ. The first fight was great, but you'd expect a man or woman to earn a next title shot. Saturday night, actually Sunday morning here in the Netherlands, Luke. Did exactly that. He submitted Kiesa after an exciting round. Now, don't you guys think that this guy has more milk to pour in the porridge than Colby? And then there's an asterisk there by pour in the porridge. And it says, it's a Dutch saying, you get what I mean.
1: I, I mean, I guess I get?
0: Long what Tall Sally mean? knows your uh, your love for a foreign expression.
1: Well, that's true. So the idea, though, is just so I understand, you want some milk in the porridge.
0: You want to have some milk to pour in the porridge. I think yeah, that's a good implication.
1: Thing. Okay, you know what? I this saying is going right in my vernacular collection. Uh, okay, one thing I will say here: I don't disagree with this sentiment. I do think, though, we do this as a community, as a as a combat sports fandom, a little bit too often, where we think that we have sort of the pecking order set. These guys are going to fight, it's going to go like this, this is the next title fight. And granted, nobody was that excited about hearing Colby Covington is going to get another shot at Usman, but they were kind of begrudgingly like, well, okay, I guess we're already in reruns for Usman as a title holder. Colby Covington did as well as anybody and was more competitive than most people are against Usman, so maybe let's run it back while we were lacking other ideas. And then somebody will come along, and in the aftermath of one good performance, we'll go, wait, 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 is it too late to change our minds? Because we just saw a thing. And yet, I understand what Long Tall Sally is saying here, because Luque's on his high streak. He's finishing people every single time. You finish Tyron Woodley, you, you finish Michael Chiesa. Those are quality wins still. And he seems like, okay, here might be a guy who presents a little bit of a different challenge than what we've seen Kamaru Usman face so far. And that seems to be sort of what we are we get to be looking for with dominant champs like this as we go, don't show me beating up the same kind of fighters he's already beaten. Who does something different? And let's find out if he can deal with that. And Luque does something a little different.
0: He runs his win streak to four in a row, snaps the four-fight win streak of Michael Chiesa this weekend with the submission victory. In the first round. Uh, I like Vicente Luque been on record with that for a long time. Now the silent assassin, a guy who's not going to talk too much, not going to do too much over the top theatric stuff, but then just go out there and be a tough son of a bitch in the cage. Uh, Not all that used to seeing him win fights via submission, not all that used to seeing Michael Chiesa get choked out. And like I said, at the top of the show, owing to the fact that he's our neighbor to the West over there in Spokane. The CME is kind of in the bag for Chiesa, has been, seems like a great guy. Uh, this was a tough one to watch. The first, what, three minutes and 20 seconds of this thing went pretty well for Michael Chiesa. And then uh, they get into that scramble, which is usually the place where Michael Chiesa really shines in these fights. He's, he's great at the scrambles. And it just looked like he went to the knees not even thinking. That Vicente Luque was going to submit him. That that was yeah. some. It seemed like maybe we had fallen victim. I don't want to call it hubris, but like a little bit of the grapplers. Uh, you know, the little bit of the, a little bit of the grapplers' confidence there. Not even thinking that Vicente Luque was going to go ahead uh, and be able to choke you out, and that is exactly what happened. I don't necessarily know that it was the kind of victory that I feel like should jump the line in terms of welterweight contenders because it's not like. Vicente Luque went out there and just blew Michael Chiesa out of the water and just dominated him for three minutes and 25 seconds. Yeah, uh, things were going Chiesa's way before Luque, uh, grabbed that choke. So it would not necessarily an overwhelming or overly dominant performance from Vicente Luque. But hey, man, like I think that the, uh, the headline here, the good news for the 170 pound division is that assuming we can get this Kamara Usman versus Colby Covington rematch out of the way. There's some other fairly interesting business happening at 170 pounds now. Not only Vicente Luque, but obviously Leon Edwards, a guy who's been kicking around trying to get that title shot for some time. Both seem like uh, viable contenders. And if, if Michael Chiesa can come out and get another win or two, I think he's right back on that list just because of you know the way that this, that this loss went down. So uh, I am interested in seeing Vicente Luque fight for the title. Just maybe not right this second.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I could see that. And you, you're right though. Like I appreciated though the, the technical brilliance of him turning this around. It was a real call the ambulance, but not for me sort of moment there by Vicente Luca. And I think that maybe that's the thing that people are seizing on is they, they see you go out there against the guy who's known for doing this thing. He's doing the thing to you. Yeah. It's, it's not looking that great. And then you turn the thing immediately right around on him. And get him with it, and I think that that's the kind of finish that gets people's attention, where they go, "Okay, we weren't that excited about Colby Covington anyway. How about this guy?" But I don't. the The thing that I see as a potential problem is you go ahead, we do Usman versus Covington, and we tell ourselves Luke probably got next. But then, if it's a long wait, does he have to fight somebody in the meantime? If so, who are you just ending up at that point? Especially from a UFC matchmaking perspective, they're going to ask themselves, we're kind of running low on contenders, as it is. Do, we, do you make the guy just wait around a long time? Do you make him try to keep his case strong? Because if he waits around for too long, next thing you know, Chad, somebody else is going to come in here with a good finish at welterweight, and we're going to do the thing all over again. Yep. We're Monday morning, we're going to be sitting around being like, how about this guy?
0: Uh, okay, I'm going to ask you this question, which came from Oscar Bailey on Patreon. He asked, what's the difference between a Darce choke and a Bravo choke? They appear to be awfully similar from the eye test. Now, this victory for Vicente Luque was called a Darce choke on the broadcast, and now I see it listed as a submission via Bravo choke on Wikipedia. So I'm going to ask the co-main event podcast Jiu-Jitsu correspondent, Ben Folks: is there a difference, or is this just two different names for what is essentially the
1: same move? Now... I might be sort of a Gi Jiu Jitsu old schooler here But my understanding was always that That basically they're the same choke But the Bravo is when you use the Gi for it Okay Like I don't know too many times I've heard of people referring it to a Bravo When it's done in no Gi Because it is essentially the same choke and everything And honestly I think we even sometimes get a little too cutesy About uh, differentiating between Anaconda and Darce Like I get it but it is functionally the same sort of arrangement physically that you're going for. Like how you're, you're you're getting into it and how you're using your opponent's own shoulder to help choke him. but I'd always heard of it that it was a darce in no gi and a Bravo when you're actually using the gi to pull around behind his back to get the grip. But I don't know, maybe maybe we've decided to go with something new.
0: So Ben Folks would call this the dars. Yeah. Okay. Next question this week comes to us from Shut the Fuck Up, Donnie, who writes, I know you guys love talking judging controversies, so how about this one? The judge who scored the third round of Raphael Fazib versus Bobby Green responded to John Anik on IG to defend his score of that round. What did you guys think? Anything to discourse here? Uh, So we are talking about Judge Joshua Ferraro, if I'm not mistaken here, Ben, the only of the three judges to score uh, last weekend's featured prelim, which was won by Raphael Faziv, uh 30-27 by this one judge, and then 29-28 from the other two judges, his defeat over Bobby Green. These guys had a hell of a fight. They ended up scooping up $50,000 fight of the night bonuses for it. Uh, but I guess we're going to talk now about the scoring of the third round. John Annick put up this post- On Instagram, where he said, with respect, (laughs) you know, here we go. If you start with the words with respect, you're about to get into some disrespect. (laughs) He writes with respect to score the third round of last night's lightweight fight between Raphael Fazeev and Bobby Green for Fazeev is to not know what you're watching. I'm confident if I sat down with 100 second graders to watch that third round, 99 or perhaps all 100 of them would score it for Bobby Green. What an absolute disgrace. I've said repeatedly that judging is one of the hardest jobs in MMA, including fighting, refereeing, and commentating. Obviously, winky face emoji. But there was nothing hard about figuring out which fighter won that round. Feel for the athletes. Then uh, Ferraro. Who is? I believe this is him, right? His uh, his IG name is Ring King USA. Nice. He responds, I was on the fence on the third round. For me, Fazeev won most of the round. So many unanswered kicks. Bobby Green has a good poker face and plays off well when he gets hit, but that doesn't score. I asked Sal D'Amato right after the fight, and he said he could see it go that way as well. Until you are in that judge's seat, only judging, I recommend you to not be that critical. I understand Green was the fan favorite, and the crowd went crazy on every strike landed by Green, but I'm there to judge the entirety of of that round. It was a close round in my eyes from my seat. On a side note, I have competed in combative sports and have thousands of bouts experience. Uh, the right fighter one, you were just talking about one round, just stop. Then he goes at Kenny Florian, you out of all people should respect this duty more. All of y'all should be ashamed of yourselves. And then he signs off with, I'm not Adelaide bird. Damn. So, Going to spend most of that asking for respect for the judges. And then he's going to throw some sharp elbows at a fellow judge there on the last line of this thing. It
1: does seem just in general, as you read this thing, it goes from, I see your well-intentioned criticism. Here's my position on it and what I have to say in response to it. To, you know what, fuck y'all for even opening your mouths and talking about me. It seems like he kind of works himself up to that maybe emotionally as he is sitting there leaving this comment that it started with one idea and it got somewhere else there by the end. But I mean, I can kind of see both sides in that looking at the judging for one thing. I think we, we show up to an event in Texas and a lot of us have our ears up for some weird officiating, some judging, some another confirmation bias sort of thing to remind us that the, Texas Athletic Commission is not that great and cannot really be trusted. And so we're, we're already looking for this stuff. And then when you see one outlier on the scorecards in this fight, it's easy for people to go, okay, who the hell is this guy? What's his deal? He must be wrong. And then we get worked up. It does seem like an uncharacteristically Strong condemnation from John Annick. I agree. And he, like, he usually doesn't go that hard at it.
0: Yeah. And this was like a pretty close fight all the way through. And again, I do think the right guy won here. I think Rafael Fazive deserved to get this decision. But after the first round of this fight on the broadcast, they were even, you know, cracking jokes about it, saying like, oh, I wouldn't want to try to score that round. Like that one was close. And it kind of went like that through the entire fight. Now, did Bobby Green turn the corner there in the third? Deserved to to get the victory in that round? Well, two out of three judges said yes. On the broadcast itself, they were talking a lot about total punch numbers. They were talking about during that round that Bobby Green was closing the gap with Fiziev in terms of like total significant strikes. And I don't know that that is necessarily an entirely fair metric to use when you're applying it to the ringside judges, because number one, they don't have those numbers yeah. in front of them. They're not looking at those stats. And so if you're going to let those stats really sway your opinion of what happens during that round, you're using information that the judges don't have at their disposal to ren- render that verdict. And I do think that even round three was close. Like Raphael Faziv did lun- land a ton of... of uh, low kicks in that round. And he was still kind of doing his thing. It was probably Bobby Green's best round. And yeah. if you came out of it thinking he won that round, that's fine with me. Uh, but but I don't know if there is a ton of controversy to be had here just in terms of how one judge scored one round. And I feel like, again, I don't know if it's an indictment or a compliment to the MMA subculture That we care so deeply that we're hardcore enough that we are out here arguing about one judge's score of one round in a fight that we all sort of agree went the proper way. And oh yeah, wasn't even on the pay-per-view broadcast that we're talking about the featured lightweight prelim here between two guys and Raphael Faziv and Bobby Green, who, you know, I guess in Faziv's case is kind of an up-and-comer and a guy that we think maybe the sky is the limit for his potential, and Bobby Green, a tough veteran who has been around but neither of these guys are on the verge of stardom and neither of them are on the verge of like knocking on the door of a title shot so like this is pretty granular to me to be talking about this round of this fight between these two guys but i guess maybe that's just an example of how much we care
1: yeah i mean maybe it is though while i don't know if you really want to make the argument when you're the judge i don't know if it's a great look for you to be like Hey, maybe I fucked it up, but still the right guy won. Yeah. Like, that's you should let other people make that argument. But I do think it is is valid in this case because no one is sitting around today going like there was a miscarriage of MMA judging justice in this fight. The right guy did won, did win. Uh even if I I wonder if some of it is just like, hey, we like Bobby Green, he's been around for a while, and we want to give him his due daps. In that fight, and be like, he won the last round, he didn't get completely shut out, and so that's why we're coming out strong against it. But it, it does seem like we should save our outrage for the ones where it, it matters more. And you know what? I don't think we'll have to wait that long. Typically, we don't. Something else will come up where it'll actually matter and it will be a meaningful fuck up, but I don't know if this is the one.
0: Last question this week comes to us from the Corgi King who writes, how do you think that vaccine mandates in this or other countries will impact the UFC? Dana White has said that he would not mandate vaccines for UFC fighters. Would his position change if having unvaccinated fighters meant that they could not put on events in places like China? If fighters are independent contractors, could the UFC even make fighters get vaccinated if they wanted to please discuss. Uh, so this might become an issue that, you know, ongoing pandemic pandemic, COVID-19 continues to be an issue in and around mixed martial arts. It continues to, in some ways, dog the UFC, even though I think the UFC would most likely prefer that they pretend like it's not happening. We just went down to Houston and did an event with a bunch of fans in the stands, despite the fact that the that Harris County and the city itself uh, was in like a critical, code red situation with coronavirus spread. Uh, We're going to keep going to Florida, even though Florida has some of the highest uh, COVID-19 positive test positivity in the world. And then we're going to keep going over to uh, Fight Island, where at least in the past, we've had a a workable COVID-19 bubble, mostly because the UFC is not paying for it. But like Dana White has said, look, man, as long as these COVID-19 restrictions are in place other places, we're just going to keep going Texas, Florida, Fight Island over and over again. And uh, he also, as, as the Corgi King notes here, has you know n- not necessarily bristled, but has said that he wouldn't require fighters to get vaccinated. We've had people like Michael Chandler come out and note he probably won't be vaccinated by the time that he's supposed to fight in New York in November or was rumored to fight in New York in, no- in November. Uh, this hasn't stopped him yet like for whatever reason it seems like the UFC can still go to Houston and put on an event with very little uh crowd control in terms of vaccination proof even when uh the the city and county government are basically saying stay home in case, unless it's an emergency but uh we just seem to be full speed ahead with the UFC's plans can you envision any scenario where Dana White or anyone else either publicly or behind the scenes, tells all these fighters they need to get vaccinated.
1: It's hard to imagine that because he he came out pretty strongly against that idea. And I don't know if you saw a lot of fighters responded to that on social media very positively. That his quote, I think, was, it's never going to happen, I'm not going to tell fighters that they have to get a vaccine. And I saw a bunch of fighters like quote tweeting that or posting uh, screenshots of those stories on Instagram and being like, my man. That's that's the boss right there. Yeah, like, thank you. And fighters are a demographic that seem like they're maybe going to be particularly vaccine hesitant or resistant. And so a lot of them are going to like that idea. If there's one thing that could get the UFC to do an about face on that, though, it'd be fucking with the money. Yep. If you get to a situation where this keeps stretching on for a long time and it's one thing to think – Hey, we're near the end of it. It's not going to be an issue for too much longer. Uh but if you're sitting around this time next year and you have all these events you have want planned like in places like New York or abroad, I and mean, China one is a good example, and those places are saying absolutely not unless you get your vaccine paperwork in order. That's when I could see the UFC being like, "Okay, actually, like maybe we don't want to make a big deal about it publicly, but let's look at who's on the card." And let's say you all need to get your shit together and get vaccinated. And you would think just from a, like a practical perspective, if you're the UFC, you would want to be done dealing with this problem as soon as you could. Because think about what it's done to so many planned bouts and fight cards to have COVID positives almost every weekend that mess with the card. We had it here. Amanda Nunes uh, tested positive. And granted, the vaccine might not necessarily keep you from testing positive. like. I mean, it will in a bunch of cases, but there's still going to be – we've seen it in baseball. There are still some breakthrough positives. Those people don't tend to get sick, though. They So meaning that even if you dealt with that, you could get them rescheduled and back in the cage probably sooner. There's a lot of reasons why getting your fighters vaccinated would be good for the USC. As for whether or not it can mandate a vaccine for independent contractors, that's an interesting question. I don't really know about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, probably – According to the actual letter of the law, the answer would be no, that it probably couldn't require independent contractors to get vaccinated to come to work. But we've also seen very few limits up to this point on what the UFC can or is willing to ask those independent contractors to do. So uh, I swear
1: to God, if this would be the thing they'd take the UFC to court over, <laughs> they won't fight some of these contract... Uh, like restrictions and some of the language in their contracts, but they will fight to be there for their right to remain fighting unvaccinated, man, that would just be some MMA shit, wouldn't it?
0: The bottom line I think is that cash is king in the UFC and the budget is king right now in the UFC. And if the UFC gets into a situation where maybe they are trying to do an international event somewhere that they think is going to be a big deal, say France, for example, which we'll see coming up in round number one where they, they, are going around on the streets asking people to show their vaccination cards. If they see you out uh, enjoying some some beverages out on the, the patio, the, the cops might pull up on you and ask you to show your vaccine card. So uh, if the UFC is trying to do a big money event somewhere internationally and they feel like they can't get it done unless everybody is vaccinated, I can see them on a case-by-case basis quietly going around to the fighters and saying, hey, if you want to be on this card... We're going to have to get you vaccinated before we go over there, not necessarily as like a political statement, but just sort of like in the way that the UFC does things as like a very pragmatic sort of like in order to get from point A to point C where we get the money, you got to get the vaccine, which seems that's in keeping with the UFC's overall worldview as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us right now. We're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. a lot to talk about here, man, in and around Cyril Gahn's victory over Derrick Lewis at UFC 265 over the weekend. Let's start here. Do you think that this was a star-making performance for Cyril Gahn? We mentioned at the top of the show how he wore the DJ Screw t-shirt to the press conference, he walked out to Mike Jones, and he still figured out a way to ruin the entire city of Houston's weekend when he scored that third-round TKO over hometown hero Derrick Lewis. But, But all along, as we talked about, Cyril Gaon seemed like kind of a, a, a cool guy. He seems like a laid-back, composed, confident, uh, cool customer in a lot of ways. And this was clearly a big moment for him to nab this victory, to get the interim UFC heavyweight title, regardless of whether or not uh, you think that that is worth anything. But was this a big moment for Cyril Gaon in your eyes? Was this sort of a breakthrough moment for him to establish himself, I guess, as a guy who, assuming that it can happen, will be worthy of a unification bout against Francis Ngannou sometime in the near future.
1: Yes. The short answer is yes, and I would refer you back to a point that you made not so long ago on this very platform where you said when you look at the heavyweight division, it seems like you've got guys like Francis Ngannou, you know John Jones trying to get in there and guys like Stipe Miocic really who for all practical purposes, seemed like they were—they might as well be competing in a different heavyweight division than the one that everybody else was in. And a lot of that, I think, had to do with the long-term holding patterns we got stuck in in that division when the title was only being defended once a year, and it was a bunch of rematches back and forth. And so it just seemed like we're waiting to finish those up before we can get to new business, and everybody else fighting at heavyweight seemed like, okay... I guess you got to keep fighting, keep making some money, and keep your name in there. But it didn't seem like it was all that plausible for anybody to jump up out of that middle-of-the-pack status and get to be a top contender. Cyril Gone managed to do that. Now, you can look at what he had to do in order to do that. He's fought three times in about seven months, won them all, and goes out there finishes Derek Lewis here. He had to be basically perfect. And in a very short time period, three fights in a year— is tough for anybody and three fights in a year at heavyweight is really not that common in the UFC. And he's got three fights in a year at heavyweight and we still got like one quarter left of the year. So he had to do all that while the heavyweight division was kind of stuck in this slow moving morass at the top. And he did it. He, He took advantage of that opportunity and punched his ticket there. I think you have to look at it and be like, okay, you know, two months ago, nobody was thinking that Francis Ngannou versus Cyril Gahn would be a big ticket heavyweight title fight. Now, it seems like one of the best fights you could make at heavyweight, at least realistically yeah. and, and, and in the near future.
0: And Cyril Gaon looks damn good. He looks good getting off the bus. He's a six foot four, two hundred and fifty pound guy who moves around more athletically than most of these heavyweights do. He's clearly uh, a more technical striker than a lot of these guys. We saw that on display in this fight against Derek Lewis. And frankly, Derek Lewis could never really get started in this fight. It just looked like he couldn't even really get close enough to Cyril Ghosn to get into his offense, to start throwing those big power shots that you know he wanted to throw. And, you know, in addition to that, every time we got into a clinch situation, it was Cyril Ghosn who kind of overpowered Derek Lewis and or used what appeared to be superior technique uh, to get himself either into or out of the position that he wanted to be in. And, you know, Cyril Gonz just kind of out there dictating the range, bouncing around, uh, throwing good punching combinations, throwing good kicks, being very patient, being very, uh, I guess, as laid back as you would expect after you find out a little bit more about his personality and he in 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 essence negated most of the things Derek Lewis wanted to do until this third round, when he scores the TKO victory with about 50 seconds on the clock before we would have got into the championship round. So it was a pretty impressive performance, in my opinion, all the way around. I don't know if it presages what it will be like for him to fight Francis Ngannou. Like they talked a little bit about that on the broadcast, talking about how uh, you know Derek Lewis's power seemed to give Francis Ngannou some pause in their previous fight, and then Cyril Gan went out and kind of handled Derek Lewis. Obviously, we're engaging in a ton of MMA math to even get to that point, yeah. but did you see this as any kind of workable preview of what a Francis Ngannou fight might look like?
1: Not necessarily. I think that they're very different opponents, and stylistically, it'll probably play out very differently. Um, I do think, though, stylistically, it's a really interesting matchup to imagine because, like you said... Cyril Gan, big guy, moves well, got excellent footwork, and is defensively very aware that he's going out there trying to hit you and not get hit back. And he's good at that. And he can hurt you that way. He, he's not overly defensive, but he's also not reckless. And he understands sort of how to get his game plan working without letting you do yours. And Francis Ngannou is sort of not nearly as pretty with his striking, but also... Doesn't really care that much because he knows he only has to touch you once. Doesn't even really have to hit you clean necessarily to hurt you. And he bases everything around that. I think one of the big variables in it is Francis Ngannou in that Stipe Miocic rematch. Looks like he has improved a lot since really being there in Las Vegas with Eric Sick and those guys at Extreme Couture. And you wonder how much other stuff might they be adding to the game. Or might they have added to the game in all this time before you see him again? Because when I look at Cyril Ghosn now, the one thing I think that we have not really had a chance to find out is how will he do against a big, powerful wrestler in the heavyweight division? Now, Francis Ngannou are not really going to be that. He's not, he's not going to turn into a D1 wrestler overnight. But we know he worked on that aspect of his game, at least defensively, uh, to deal with Stipe. And if you were trying to build a game plan to beat Cyril Ghosn, I would think that that would be one of the areas you'd want to see him tested in. And I also think that Francis Nganu has that kind of one shot power that if you have to wait in there with him and, and get into those striking exchanges, you better be perfect. Because if he catches you once, it could be all over. And I think, you know, Derek Lewis, he has that one shot power, but he is also kind of the master of losing the whole fight until he wins and and just waiting for you to stand there long enough. And if you don't agree to do that, he doesn't always have too many ways to make you. And Francis Ngannou, I think, is a little different than that.
0: Man, you know Eric Nixick is dying to teach Francis Ngannou some takedowns. You know that like <laughs> he would probably love nothing more. I bet he thinks about it every day when he's having his morning coffee. And he's getting those early morning MMA strategy texts from his mom. And I bet <laughs> Eric Nixick is like, man, if Francis would just let me teach him a single
1: we'd be in business if we we could just chain some takedowns together off of that single leg you know maybe get an ankle pick in here uh the thing that i wonder is we we kind of can't talk about what's going on here without talking about the like what the timeline is going to be right because Cyril Gon, like i said fought three times in seven months and he said i would like a little bit of time off and damn it he's earned it
0: Uh (laughs) uh-oh (laughs) <laughs> Don't ask for time off in the UFC heavyweight division. We just learned that the hard way.
1: You're going to get yourself an interim, interim champ. But I it's totally understandable you fight that much. If you just go through three training camps in seven months, that's going to wear your body down. So in order to get yourself ready to fight the biggest fight of your life against the most dangerous opponent you've ever faced, I can understand why you'd want to take some time off, let your body get fresh again before you get into another training camp to go fight that guy. Francis Ngannou said that, you know, he wants to fight in the fall. I would think the earliest you could be looking at is sort of end of the year or like early next year. And you hope that the UFC has the patience for that and that we're not going to do something stupid just for the sake of convenience. And yet, and yet, Chad, there's also the specter of John Jones sort of looming over all of this. And I wonder, I wrote about this a little bit in my mailbag to call him today, did the UFC learn all the wrong lessons from this situation? Because they came out of it. It looked before, after Francis Ngannou won the title. Immediately after, we were all saying, "Give us Ngannou versus Jones at heavyweight, or get the fuck out." And the UFC was saying, "How about Derek Lewis?" And we said, "No." We are not interested in that bullshit. And then you get into a situation where Derek Lewis fights Cyril Gaṇ. The interim title thing is bullshit. Yeah, but Cyril Gaṇ comes out of it looking still undefeated and great and like a real challenge. And now we're going, yes, we would watch this as well. Like we we were willing to get excited about this. And does the UFC come out of that going, we did it again. Yeah. We, we spun straw from gold or spun gold from straw. That's how it goes. Yeah. And like basically... When we sit down to make a next title fight, it'll be who says yes to our date for the money we are offering. And if you won't do that and you think that you have negotiating power, we'll just go create another top contender. We already did it once. We can do it again.
0: It's the luxury of having all the pieces on the chessboard, right? Not only the black ones, but also the white ones. It's like you got both teams if you're the UFC And it does feel like they, Diego Sanchez, yes, cartwheeled their way into (laughs) an unbelievable win here for them. Because, you know, you got to showcase Derek Lewis in Houston, which is what you wanted to do. You got to have your interim title fight, which is what you wanted to do. And then you got the victor that I think you wanted. Because now you set up a possible meeting with Francis Ngannou in France with a good storyline. And it just seems like everything keeps coming up UFC, which is, again, a thing that can happen. When you have every card in the deck, that's just, you know, more often than not, you're going to be able to control the narrative and the situation. If anything gives me confidence or hope that the UFC will let this one lie and actually do Francis Ngannou versus Cyril Gane on some manner of timeline, even if it takes a few months to set up, is because it does seem like they got exactly what they wanted out of the situation. And you would be foolish at this point to meddle with it. I think you just leave it alone, assuming that you can sign Francis Ngannou to have this fight. We frankly still don't even know what the holdup was, right? We still don't know exactly why the UFC needed to do this interim heavyweight title and what Francis Ngannou's deal was.
1: But Globetrotten. That's what I was led to believe by the, right. these video packages.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I think if, if you're the UFC and you can make it happen, doesn't it seem like now is the time for Cyril Gahn against Francis Ngannou to unify the title? And maybe Stipe Miocic against John Jones because that would it would tie up kind of a lot of loose ends that you have right now in the UFC heavyweight division. And again, maybe that's a big if that you can make that financially work out for everyone. But to me, that seems like the path forward here.
1: Yeah, it does seem like the hardest part of that it would be getting John Jones to agree to a Stipe Miocic fight. But but
0: wasn't I mean, John isn't John Jones at this point kind of the biggest loser of this last weekend? He's because stuck, man. He's before really this, stuck. it was all we wanted. It seemed like he had all the chips, like he could hold out for Francis Ngannou. And now, obviously, somebody's going to win that Cyril Gone Francis Ngannou fight, and we will be just as interested, I would assume, in seeing that winner fight John Jones. But at least for the time being, it seems like a lot of what he was counting on has disappeared. That the UFC has maneuvered their way out of it yet again. So if I'm John Jones and I'm sitting there and I want to have a fight. Stipe Miocic is maybe the best offer you're going to get for right now.
1: Yeah, and John Jones is in a tough spot because he gave up his light heavyweight title, went up a division. And if we are to believe what he's told us, he's put a lot of work into remaking his body as a heavyweight. And now if you get up there to heavyweight and the UFC is saying, these are the heavyweight fights we are willing to offer you. And every time you say no to one, your contract gets extended. And meanwhile, you can't, Very easily just be like, well, fuck it. I'm going back down to light heavyweight and get my belt back there because you have changed your body and it's not, it's probably not going to be easy to lose all that weight and go back down again. And it's going to be just sort of a letdown. You are in a situation where the UFC feels like, Hey, look, we're doing all right without you. We're not, we have sort of a changing business model as it is. It doesn't rely as much on pay-per-views and we're doing okay. Like we, we could have you sit out indefinitely and it's not going to affect our bottom line too much, but it will affect you big time. So you got to at some point say yes to a fight. And these are the fights we're willing to give you. Like he is sort of stuck there. And I think that that sucks and I can understand why he would be upset about it. But I do think that if he could take away like maybe some of the, his expectations or ego or whatever it is, and look at a fight against Stepe Music, man, a year ago, We would have cut off a toe to see John Jones versus Stipe Miocic. That's a dream fight you make on the video game. Uh, The most dominant heavyweight champ the UFC ever had is Stipe Miocic to, to this date. So that's still a good fight. And if he could understand that, hey, getting back in there and getting a win over a former champion, Stipe, would be pretty good and allow me to remake my case for that big money title fight on TV, that's not so bad. You could work with that.
0: All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. You just referenced it, so I'm going to go ahead with my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Two quotes from Dana White that I want to read here for Are You Fucking Kidding Me? First, him at the UFC 265 post-fight press conference talking about the possibility of Francis Ngannou and Cyril Gon fighting in France to unify the heavyweight title. Here's his quote. What you always want to do when you either build fighters or build fights or put on fights is you want to have the best possible guys fighting each other that you possibly can. It doesn't get any better than this. You couldn't write it. You couldn't script it. Fucking Vince McMahon couldn't have wrote a better script for this whole thing. It's beautiful. First of all, not to be that guy, but couldn't have written. (laughs) Couldn't have written a better script. Here's the other quote though, from Dana White three hours earlier on the UFC broadcast, on the, the the video vignette for the heavyweight title fight. Here he is talking about Francis Ngannou. If you don't want to fight, no problem. You can wait and fly around the world. Go on vacation or whatever you're doing. Knock yourself out. When you're ready, we're here. Are you fucking kidding me, man? This is him two hours before, Go on vacation or whatever, he says about Francis Ngannou flying home to Cameroon to, like, build a well and start a youth (laughs) training center. Go on vacation. Knock yourself out. Then two hours later, when Dana White has a fight to sell us, it's fucking beautiful. Vince McMahon couldn't have written a better
1: script. You fucking kidding me, man? Fucking kidding me? I've said it before, Chad. Nobody unpromotes a fighter like Dana White.
0: Until he's ready, and then it's beautiful. Then, like, you couldn't possibly imagine a a more fitting situation.
1: Just got yourself sort of this great potential star quality talent, and you can't wait to tell people what a jerk-off he is for not showing up to fight. Well, Chad, my, are you fucking kidding me? I'm going to read you a headline. This is from MMAmania.com. Luke Rockhold got drunk and belligerent, heckled Sean O'Malley's dad. Now, this quote from Sean O'Malley, they were in Whitefish or something. Luke was drunk and he kept telling my dad, Cheeto beat your son's ass. I guess they trained together. My dad said Luke was super buzzed, but he kept saying, Cheeto beat your son's ass. Why would you be like that? Unless my dad was saying something. You know what I think it was? Luke said, do you not know who I am? And my dad said, you look familiar, but I don't know. So that probably pissed him off. I don't know the whole story. Now, listeners of the CME's other Patreon properties will probably know that I have mentioned once or twice. Luke Rockhold was in Whitefish fairly recently. He was up there doing a seminar at the SBG gym in Whitefish. Uh, Some some good friends of the the CME podcast are involved with that gym. Do good work up there. They got themselves a really nice facility, by the way, if you're ever up there in Whitefish. But uh, this seems like a situation I can honestly imagine pretty easily.
0: Yeah, yeah. This doesn't seem out of character at all for what we know of Luke Rockwell.
1: I do not have a hard time picturing how this happened. He goes up there to do a seminar. From what I understand, didn't exactly knock people's socks off up there with his seminar work. They go out for some beers. One of the, you know, maybe a microbrewery up there in Whitefish. Luke has a few too many, and just can't stop mouthing off to Sean O'Malley's dad for no good reason. Fucking
0: kidding me! Fucking kidding me! That's gonna go for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
1: I'm just gonna say this right now. This shouldn't be happening. Just based on what I know about combat sports, how it goes, how the career arc goes, at this point, 34 year old Jose Aldo da Silva Oliveira Jr. should not be still looking sharp as hell in a lower weight class than the one he dominated in his what we thought was his prime as a champion. And yet, Here he is, you know, he, he shows up, he he moves down to bantamweight, which seemed to us at the time, like one of those fighters, false friend scenarios, right? Like you hit a roadblock at featherweight. Doesn't look like you're going to get the title back there. You tell yourself, I'll just lose some weight and it'll all be good. You ignore the fact that we have seen you struggle mightily with that cut to 145 pounds already. You're going to lose 10 more pounds and then think you're going to go down there and dominate in your mid-30s in a division that really favors the younger fighters. And yet, you know, he has looked pretty good his entire time at Bantamweight, even with a few losses there. You know, he, he lost that split decision to Marlon Moraes, got knocked out uh, late in the fight by Peter Jan, but Peter Yan's really fucking good, as we have learned. But now he's got two straight wins, and he looked awesome against Pedro Munoz.
0: Yeah, it's impossible to believe that Jose Aldo is only 34, right? Because I feel like we've been talking about him for like a dozen years. And yet, you know, you wake up, he's the same age as Pedro Munoz headed into this fight. Uh, He's lived three lifetimes in this sport. And not only that, he still continues to get better, it seems, or at least to uh, retool his skill set heading into this newfound maybe career or home at Bantamweight. And I guess in, in fairness, we should say he's two and two since moving down to 135, but as you mentioned, the losses are to Marlon Moraes and, and Peter Yawn, so uh, nothing to really sneeze at there, especially the split decision against Moraes that uh, the UFC just decided to treat as a win anyway, so things are going okay for Jose Aldo right now, and the amazing thing to me, not only about moving down in weight, when we spent most of his featherweight title reign talking about him moving up, to lightweight, to have super fights and whatnot. Instead, he decides to turn around and go down. He still looks fast. He's out here fighting 135-pound guys, and he still uh, appears to be the quicker fighter. And you add on to that the jab that he was doing nice work with, the nasty body shots that he is doing nice work with, the composure. He's out here. Ben, calf kicks have been all of the rage in MMA for like a year. We've been talking about how there are like... Uh, basically a cheat code. Conor McGregor's tweeting about how they're not fair and they take no (laughs) skill. Jose Aldo's out here checking Pedro Munoz's calf kicks like it ain't no thing. Like, oh, you're going to throw that? Yes, this is is my instructional video for how we could check those things. His defense looks great. He avoided most of the big power shots from Munoz. I don't know, man. At 34 years old, he looks, I'm not going to say better than ever because... At his peak, he was pretty fucking good, but he looks good enough to beat most people in most divisions. And frankly, if at this point we're talking Jose Aldo versus TJ
1: Dillashaw, yes, please. Give it to me. It's mine. I'm glad you mentioned Conor McGregor because isn't it interesting to think about the journeys both men have gone on since their meeting at UFC 194 in December 2015? Because... That seemed like it could have been the critical turning point where if he wasn't careful, Jose Aldo became sort of like a a punchline or a footnote, which would have been sad considering his his dominance in that division for a long time. But he goes out there against Conor McGregor, gets knocked out in 13 seconds, is dying for the rematch that we know he's never going to get because Conor McGregor basically flees the division right after that. And then it's like the aura of invincibility is punctured for Jose Aldo. He, you know, he wins that fight at UFC 200 against Frankie Edgar for like an interim title and but then loses two in a row to Max Holloway and we all sort of went, well, okay, I guess that's that. We have seen the Jose Aldo climb and the peak and now it's just a matter of how long the downward slide is going to be because that's what we're used to. That's how it usually goes in this sport and to see how he has persisted on and still looks really, really good even down a weight class now. That's just not how it ever goes. And it is kind of like, I'm glad, especially for him, because it seems like at times he didn't get all the respect that he was deserving of when he was champion. And then people were really ready to move on very quickly after he got knocked out by Conor McGregor. And so to now see him sort of winning over this section of the fan base and really getting the love both from fellow fighters who all show up and have nothing but good things to say about him and, and r- clearly respect him a ton, to media, to fans, to everybody. It warms the damn heart is what it does.
0: Yeah, I think that that 13-second knockout loss to Conor McGregor really hurt his reputation in the moment. But he has done great things to to rebound from it, and even though uh, his overall record since that loss is is not the prettiest thing in the world, uh, all of the positive things that I said about him a minute ago, I think eclipse some of that stuff. And like you just mentioned it, but you look at the losses for Jose Aldo, the career losses essentially in the WEC and UFC uh, career of Jose Aldo, Peter Yawn, champion, Alexander Volkanovsky, champion, Max Holloway, champion, Conor McGregor, champion. And then of course you got that split decision of Marlon Marais. So it seems like only the cream of the crop, at the height of their powers, beat Jose Aldo, even at this stage in the game when he's already got a lot of wear and tear on his body and and over the course of his career. But one of the things that strikes me as weird about Jose Aldo, and we have both said before that any, like, goat discussion, any greatest-of-all-time discussion in MMA, especially how we typically talk about it, is kind of silly because the sport hasn't been around that long. It seems like we're changing who we think the greatest-of-all-time is based on one or two performances from one week to the next, we might be having a different conversation. But when we do have those talks, Jose Aldo almost never gets mentioned. We talk about George St. Pierre. We talk about John Jones. We talk about Anderson Silva. We talk about Fedor, but not Jose Aldo. And yet, after 17 years in the sport, Jose Aldo is still out here fighting relevant contenders, young, up-and-coming guys who are in the mix for the title, and he's beaten them. And just in terms of like longevity and how good he's been throughout his entire UFC career, it, it's kind of strange to me that maybe we don't give him the, the, the respect or view him in the proper context as maybe we should. And I honestly don't know exactly why that is.
1: Yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong.
0: And I think some of it is that, like, he had his best moments before we were really watching.
1: In the blue cage, you mean? Yeah, because,
0: like, his WEC run, as I've said on this show before, was unbelievable. It's one of the most dominant, amazing things I've ever seen in the sport, because at the time, I was working for Versus uh, slash NBC Sports, so I got to watch a lot of those WEC events, which were pulling down, you know, maybe 100,000 viewers if they were lucky, so nobody was really watching it. But, like, the stuff that Jose Aldo did back in those days was just incredible. And then, you know, viewed in, in that context, even though he was very, very successful throughout the first five-ish years of his UFC run, like, uh, you know, he wasn't out there throwing double flying knees, knocking people out like he had been in the WEC. So it was a little bit of a, not necessarily a disappointment, but he didn't quite live up to maybe the the high heights that we thought he would. And to end that run getting knocked out by Conor McGregor in 13 seconds, I think kind of put a damper on the whole thing. And it is only now in retrospect that we have seen, you know, his resurgence and his resilience that maybe we can look back on it and say, Oh, we probably need to put Jose Aldo in that conversation among those guys that we consider to be the greatest of all time.
1: I've often thought that both Jose Aldo and Chad Dundas were at their primes. And at that point,
0: yeah, circa, uh, 2008 2009 yeah yeah we were both
1: just living it up just a couple young guys out here carefree you were doing the double flying knee equivalent of online content for versus exactly
0: yes that's 100 percent true all right that's gonna do it for round number two we'll be right back with round number three Fresh off his loss to Valentine Moldovsky at Bellator 261 back in June. Big Tim Johnson, the native of Fargo, North Dakota, is going to get the call to go over there to Russia and fight the legend Fedor Emelianenko at Bellator 269, October the 23rd at the VTB Arena in Moscow. This is is what we're going to do. We talked a little bit about this on Friday uh, on the Patreon Power Hour, which, by the way, if anybody wants to get down with that, you can join the team over at patreon.com slash co-main event, get the three extra podcasts every week that we do over there for the paying customers, the beloved patrons of the co-main event. Uh, But one of the things we talked about on Friday was Bellator had made kind of a big deal over who they were going to book Fedor against for this, this Russian event. They were like, we got a big announcement, a special announcement there was talk that it might be uh, uh, Josh Barnett. There there was talk about some other uh, you know, guys floating around in the ether at the time. Alistair Overeem was a, a free agent. We thought he might be one of the guys, Junior Dos Santos. We thought he might be one of the guys. What is your reaction now to finding out, nope, what we're doing is Big Tim Johnson?
1: I mean, it's so disappointing because, as you said, he made a big deal out of Fedor's coming back, the return of Fedor. We're going to have a big fight for Fedor in Russia. And and you got us excited. You knew what you were doing there. And right now, if you look around sort of contractually at the landscape and who could potentially be available, there are several good options. And that has not always been the case. Like Sometimes you've had Fedor there and you just did not have that many people who made sense that you could conceivably sign to fight him because they were locked down elsewhere. Now, you got Josh Barnett, who said that he was interested in the fight and wanted to get it. You got Alistair Overeem as a possibility, Fabricio Verduum as a possibility. You got some of these guys who we, you know, Fabricio, we saw that fight, but a rematch would still be interesting. And the other two, we never got to see them, even though it seemed like they were all but inevitable. And you have the opportunity now, a rare opportunity, to seize that moment and make some of these fights finally happen, albeit a few years after their expiration date. But isn't that always the way? And still, we, and we would get excited about those fights. If you announce Fedor versus Josh Barnett in Moscow, you have our attention. Yeah. If you say Fedor versus Tim Johnson, you're going like, okay, so the guy who was the loser in the interim title fight that you guys just had. And it seems like, for one, Fedor's people looking around for a fight they think they could win. And I don't even necessarily know if it's all that safe to assume that. Tim Johnson could go out there and beat Fedor's ass at this point. That's a realistic possibility. But also, doesn't it seem like we were looking around for an opponent who would accept opponent money to fight Fedor? Because that's what we think. this. We think this is a Fedor fight in Russia. And we do not want to overspend to try to make like a big-time Fedor Barnett or like, you know, Fedor versus like finally some unfulfilled hopes are, are going to come home here. We didn't want to make that kind of fight. We didn't want to spend the money to make that kind of fight. We think just Fedor in Russia is good enough.
0: Yeah, and it seemed to happen at kind of a big time for Bellator on the heels of closing out that featherweight Grand Prix and having AJ McKee become the champion, maybe a potential new star for Bellator albeit at an event that didn't necessarily do the numbers that I think they might have been hoping for. Uh, But it would have been awfully big if you could have rolled in on the heels of that momentum and said, look forward to October because we got Fedor Emelianenko versus Josh Barnett in Moscow, or Fedor Emelianenko versus Alistair Overeem in Moscow. Uh, You know you made a disappointing announcement when even Junior Dos Santos gives you kind of like a why they do that. over the announcement of, of Tim Johnson. And so it seems like a little bit of a missed opportunity. And again, I think you get yourself into a, a huge why they do that situation if Tim Johnson messes around and beats Fedor in this the fight, because then I don't even know what you even did it for. And you look at what Fedor has done since he returned from his retirement in 2015. I will just run down the opponents for you. Jai Deep Singh, Fabio Maldonado, Matrione, Frank Mir, Chael Sonnen, Ryan Bader, Rampage Jackson. Most of those, not heavyweights. So I don't even know how to think of Fedor at this point or what his prospects might be against Tim Johnson. And if you're worried about competition, if you don't want to give him uh, a fight that it seems like he's going to lose either against Barnett or uh, somebody like Overeem or even Dos Santos, I think that... uh, that you're making the wrong calculations if you're Bellator because I think what you need to be doing right now, regardless of whether or not Fedor wins or loses, is trying to put on spectacles yeah. that will interest us. And any of those three guys that I just mentioned would have would have been more suited, I think, to that than, than Tim Johnson.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of my point is Fedor coming back and fighting for you in Moscow. Is it a big deal or not? Because the way you teased the announcement before you had an opponent, it sounded like you want us to get on, get excited to get on board with it as a big deal. But then when you say Tim Johnson as the opponent, what you're telling me is, man, we're just doing a Fedor fight. We're doing Fedor versus TBA. And that's not like trying to talk shit on Tim Johnson. I like Tim Johnson, think he has a, a realistic chance to win this fight, but it doesn't, he doesn't fall into that category of people where you could still get me super excited like it's 2005 all over again to watch Fedor fight them right now. He's not; He doesn't have that history with Fedor that will work for that. And so if you're Bellator, the the same point I made where we discussed this a little bit on Friday's Power Hour, Fedor fights at this point are not an inexhaustible resource, man. There are not going to be that many more of them no matter how it goes. There's it's a finite number left. And so if we're going to make some of these fights, you kind of got to make them now. And if you're not, then you're basically telling me like, okay, we're just, we are using Fedor to basically tour County fairs and have him play some of the greatest hits, but we're not doing anything really special with him. And that seems like a missed opportunity to me. Because you're right, Bellator struggles the most with just getting our attention, just getting us in the door, and getting us to mark it on our calendars and be like, okay, here's one I gotta see. You did it with the Featherweight Grand Prix, you had a chance to do it here, and instead you choose, like, let's just get somebody who will take the fight and not make it a headache for us to sign the thing.
0: Never, ever think that we would sit here on this show and talk junk about former Dakota FC heavyweight champion
1: Tim Johnson. Mm -mm, mm Mm-mm, won't happen, won't ever happen.
0: This guy, as I said at the top of the show, rolls in three and one in his last four. He lost that fight to Valentin Moldovsky in June, but before that, he'd beat Tyrell Fortune, Matrione, and Czech Congo right in a row. So if if you're trying to figure out whether or not he's gonna be a threat against Fedor Emelianenko, I believe the answer is yes. Also, sorry, Tim Johnson, a... A native of Lamberton, Minnesota. Not a native of Fargo, but I think you know as well as I do. You get get out in that neck of the woods, it's all
1: kind of the same. Yeah. His name, his name still rings out in Fargo, I'm sure. That's true.
0: That's true. All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff?
1: Well, Chad, as alluded to earlier, we were supposed to see Amanda Nunes versus Juliana Pena for the UFC women's bantamweight title at UFC 265. That got called off late because Amanda Nunes and and her entire family tested positive for COVID. Uh, her wife uh, Nina Nunes had posted on social media that for like that they were actually sick, or at least she was. Said that for about eleven days she felt like poop emoji, and uh, seemed like they were really dealing with it. There, Juliana Pena obviously was disappointed to have her title fight called off. She showed up at the press conference and took the opportunity to get on the mic and play reporter and ask Dana White where Amanda is when we can, when we can get her here and try to make the fight. And with that not happening, she's out here backstage at UFC 265, talking to reporters and suggesting some, some ideas. I'm going to read this quote from, from MMA Junkie's story. I heard from a teammate of hers that she hasn't even been training. Even when she was healthy and is healthy, she barely has been in the gym. So that part is frustrating for me because I've been making this fight my top priority. And I've been doing the mom thing as well. You know, I do want to take this time to say that I understand her position. She's a new mother. She wants to enjoy that time with her baby, and she lacks a little bit of motivation to get up for a fight when she wants to hang out with her little newborn. I get that. I was in that same position. But if you're not going to fight in December, it will be two years since she's defended the belt at 135 pounds. We've got to keep the train moving. Let's get a girl in there that's ready to rock, and we'll fight for the interim belt. And when she's ready to come back, she can come pry it out of my cold, dead fingers. Chad? Chad? I'm just saying, be careful. Be careful, Juliana Pena. Because, for one thing, you have the title shot. We all recognize that next title shot in the division is yours. You suggest an interim title is maybe a good way to mess around and lose your title shot and not get that chance. But also, what if Amanda hears you? What if she hears you saying this stuff about her, dude? Because she might get mad. And if she gets mad... I'd be a little afraid. Amanda Nunez is not somebody I want to piss off. I'm just saying.
0: Just saying. Wow.
1: Well, Ben, it's interesting that you brought up
0: Sean O'Malley and his podcast earlier because I'm going to sit here and go with a different quote, a different story from Sean O'Malley's podcast. I'm looking at Jed Mayshoe's transcription over at MMAfighting.com. This is him talking about his current relationship with the UFC and specifically matchmaker Sean Shelby. He says, I don't know if I'm even supposed to say this, oh. but I was talking to my manager and he was talking to Sean Shelby and Sean Shelby was mad at me. Turns out uh, Sean O'Malley was supposed to fight in New York and he says, dude, I don't want to fight in New York. It's far. The taxes are ridiculous. And Tim Welch has no gi adcc trials that weekend, especially when I could fight like a month later in Vegas. And Sean Shelby was just like mad, like, fine, go hang out with 6 9 Is that how you say that? The name of that rapper where it's the number six and then I X and then the number nine. You asking the wrong guy. I'm just going to say six, nine, because that's how it looks like it's supposed to be. Here's Sean, Sean O'Malley again. Just acting like a fucking tool, dude. I don't know if I should have said that or not, but it's like, dude, come on. What are you doing? Then he goes on, they don't need me. The UFC would be 100% fine without me. If they want another huge giant star, I could fill that role for sure. But they don't need me. They don't treat me. They don't need to treat me like that. Like, act like I'm not training or nothing. Go, you're hanging out with 6ix9ine? Okay, I've hung out with him once. Well, maybe like three days. But yeah, no, treat me like a piece of shit. It's like, dude, I would rather not deal with him at all and just deal with Dana. So, first of all, if you're out here. If you've lost Sean O'Malley, I'm just saying maybe you're doing it wrong. And second, if you're forcing a fighter to be out here and be like, I would rather deal with Dana White <laughs> in my fight negotiations than deal with someone else. I don't know, man. Maybe that's something to think about. I'm just, I'm just saying.
1: Well, honestly, can we just agree that Sean O'Malley on his podcast saying, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this or not. It's kind of like. John Anik starting his thing with uh, respectfully.
0: Yeah, with respect.
1: Because I I hear Sean O'Malley say that, and I go, whatever it is you're about to say, you probably should not say it. You probably are going to get yourself in some trouble.
0: <laughs> I mean, honestly, though, spoken like a true Montana guy to say you don't want to go fight in New York because it's far. It's far. It's
1: far, man. It's fucking far, it's fucking far dude. Too it's like far.
0: two planes Yeah, to get there. If you're lucky, you only got to take two planes. Anyway... Uh, That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Remember, uh, we'll be over at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event all week doing our additional podcasts over there. If you want to hear those, you can jump on, join the team. We got three easy levels of patronage that you can choose from, and we have a lot of fun over there. As for right now, though, thanks for listening. We're done. We're through. We're out.
1: Taxes are pretty good, though. Yeah. He's not wrong about that. Plus, Tim's got his ABCC tryouts that weekend. I love how these are all, in his mind, perfectly reasonable, practical concerns. Yeah. We got stuff to do, man. I
0: am I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying Sean O'Malley is wrong about any of this stuff. I think that his
1: his points are valid.